Welcome to the 46th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. I'm Katie Rainey, filling in for Brian Birnbaum while he's taking some time off. I am happy to have with me here today writer and editor David Peretz. So why don't we go with that? Okay, Peretz. Yeah, perfect. David Peretz. Yeah. What's your middle name? Eli. Eli, okay. I'm not going to say your full name, but I just wanted to ask. What's your middle name? My real name's Mary Catherine. Mary Catherine. Yeah, I hate it. Why? (laughs) You know, my wife's first name is Mary, and she is always going by her middle name. Yeah? What's her middle name? Charlotte. Okay. Well, that's pretty. Mary Charlotte. Mary Catherine is a nun. Mary Charlotte is a little nunny, too. Mary anything is a little nunny. But Mary Catherine (laughs) is like the nunniest of the nuns. I was named to be a nun. Yeah. And that did not happen. Yeah. Welcome to the 46th episode of the Dead Rabbits podcast brought to you by Dead Rabbits, a literary press for books that matter. I'm Katie Rainey filling in for Brian Birnbaum while he's taking some time off. And I'm happy to have with me here today, writer and editor David Peretz. Did I do it right? Perfect. Peretz. Got it. David Peretz is the editorial director of Global City, an independent press that publishes the literary and cultural journal Global City Review and a growing list of other books and anthologies, including his own, which we're going to talk more about in a little bit. As editorial director, he oversaw the relaunch of the journal and the publication of the newest online and print journal issue, Legacies, which I have a beautiful copy with me. It's very pretty. We'll post it online after this so people can go look. So by the time we air this, it'll be posted. So go look at it. He's also the creator and founder of Burly Bird Zine. Peretz teaches writing at Yeshiva University in New York City, where he currently resides. He earned an MFA in creative writing from the City College of New York, CUNY. The Escapist is his debut novel due out January what? 28th. 28th. So in... What, what are we, three weeks away? We're about three weeks out. Ooh, yeah. exciting. Yeah. And this is your debut novel. So do you have any short stories, like collections or anything out? Or is I don't, this, nope, this, this is, is the it. First this book. is the first one. This is the first book. Okay, yeah. awesome. I've had some shorter pieces published, but this is the first book. How are you feeling about it? I'm nervous. Yeah. I'm scared. I'm excited. All of those yeah. feelings. We've had a couple of debut authors on, and obviously Brian talked about it before his book came out in September. So a lot of newer writers or a lot of like for debut novelists, there's this kind of like big thing you put on your first book coming out. And then immediately after I hear everybody like, oh, like my life didn't change. Nothing right. happened. Right. It's just my books out in the world now. I don't know. Do you have that feeling? Are you battling with that yeah. right now? Well, I've been working on this book for so long. I mean, I probably, st- I probably started an early version of it 10 years ago. Yeah. And it would be put away for a while and then I'd return to it. And so I've been sitting with it for so long that honestly, I'm, I'm ready to move on. Yeah. I'm excited to get it out there Mm -hmm. and I'm excited for people to read it. But honestly, I'm, I, I am probably more excited to starting something new. Yeah. Putting this thing to bed. Well, before we really dig more into the escapist, I do want to talk about like 
where it's being published and yeah. and why and so what what is Global City? Yeah, sure. So Global City, it's a writers collective mm-hmm. and it's a press and it's been publishing the Global City Review since 94. Mm-hmm. So it was founded by Lindsay Abrams and she was a professor of the writing program of the MFA program at City College. And then... So it, it is yeah. affiliated with City College? It was. Oh, it was. So, okay. so it was affiliated with City College, but we relaunched the press as an independent press. Oh, okay. But we, we are taking with it all of those amazing stories that we've published mm-hmm. since 94. So it's been really fun bringing this press back to life and so, bringing the collective back yeah. into life. So what was the hiatus? When did it stop? And then when did it start back up? So this this issue, Legacies, that just came out mm-hmm. last year was the first issue. Okay. And that was the inaugural issue. That was that was with the, the launch of the press. Okay. And before that, the previous journal was from about three or four years ago. Okay. Uh, three or four years before that. So yeah, there was this this somewhat long hiatus. And Lindsay and myself and a bunch of others, we decided to bring this thing back to life. And mm-hmm. I mean, there was such a rich history of, of writing and some, some important pieces that people should read that we shouldn't just let fade away. Well, since 94, and, are there any writers we might recognize that have been published in there? Yeah, yeah. I, I got a whole list here, and I could kind of read it off to you, Yeah, too. tell me some. Um, also, all, uh, another change that we made when we relaunched is that we made all of our content free. So before, it was subscription-based. Oh. So now it's, it's totally free. Mm-hmm. And we felt that that was important as keeping with the the core philosophy mm-hmm. and as as part of the independent press we wanted to make all of this past content free and accessible as well so so if you go back you can look at all of the previous titles and just to read some of these off you'll find works by National Book Award winners, Joan Silber, Jean Valentine, best-selling novelists, Marilyn French, Mary Gordon, Frederick Tooten, Grace Paley, Eve Ensler, Mark Doty, Alfred Korn, a number of, of wow. other poets from that time period. Elliot Weinberger, Felicia Bonaparte, Megan Dom, Rebecca Chase, E.M. Broner. And then there were a number of international writers, writers from Mexico, mm-hmm. Bosnia, China. Some of the, the essays were just some of the pieces that were previously published, Rediscovering Deaf-Mute Existence in Film, Vampires, wow. Conquerors, and Other Monster Selves, a memoir by a psychic, one by a man with AIDS who has now died, who wrote about the night he thought he contracted the virus. Oof. There's an interview with a gay cop from the 80s, New York City, and lots of reviews on art and other books. And there was something by the Artists and Homeless Collaborative and a project by the New York Theological Society Men's Group at Sing Sing. So, so there was such a rich history yeah. of these writers going back to 94, 20, 25 years ago. And so we, we resurrected it and we're taking that same philosophy and we're moving forward with that. And I think something that we're planning on doing is sometime in the future, maybe for 
maybe like three issues down the line, we'll probably do a, do a best of, mm-hmm. and we'll probably publish some of these authors and their pieces from, from 10, 15 years ago. The first issue was called Sexual Politics, mm-hmm. and you know this is mid-90s, and it's really interesting reading them again now with where we are now with you know, the Me, Me Too movement mm-hmm. and seeing them in this new light is really interesting. Are there some that you kind of cringe that were published in those editions or you're just, it's interesting to read the perspective of, at that time. It's interesting to read the perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, I like cringe worthy stuff. Yeah. So the cringe is good. I think anything particular come to mind. I, I mean, what, what sticks out for me just because we just did a, did a new post about it was this interview with the gay cop. Mm-hmm. And he he was anonymous for this piece. He, mm. he stayed anonymous because at the time he would lose his career. Yeah, and, yeah. But he talked about this encounter he had where he where he arrested someone, but he also had this really strong connection Whoa. with the person, and he felt like there was this 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 connection, this kind of sexual tension, and he talked about that in the piece. And I feel like a lot of that still applies. Like it's yeah. still, I think it's still hard to be a gay cop. Is that, so can we still get a copy of that? Yeah. That's available? Yeah. All of the past pieces are all on the website. So you print all through Ingram? We, well, moving forward, we're, we're oh, printing okay. through Ingram in addition to publishing online. So they're all print on demand. You're not doing print runs. That was just really a question for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, what we did with this issue mm-hmm. is that we did a small print run of mm-hmm. about 300 copies mm-hmm. and we slowly sold them off. But yeah, moving forward, solely POD. Yeah. Because it's, it, we don't have the money yeah, to, of course. to do anything. And POD is an affordable option mm-hmm. with that. And really it's the, you know, we're, we've moved to the digital space before it was all print. And now it's the website that has taken center stage for the publication. So what about the, the press itself? So yeah. how that has not been around since 94. Yeah. Oh, it has? Yeah, okay. we've done a lot of books. So there were, let me, eight books before wow. mine. The last one was Nortada the North Wind by Michelle Yasmin Valadares, who is part of the collective now. She's our poetry editor. It's a, it's a really interesting book. And then some anthologies. We have an anthology called The Breast, which is all about boobs. <laughs> a piece called Ghost Stories, The Power to Dream, Interviews with Women in the Creative Arts, another piece called Girls, mm-hmm. which is about girlhood and womanhood. Um, and, and that's also an anthology. And we had a lot of great writers for that. Maya Angelou wrote a piece for that. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. feeling there's a lot about like sexual identity and gender and, and things like that. Is that, a, you know, a big theme of the the press in a way that kind of identity or no is that just kind of coincidence that's that well that's a huge part of being human of sure. being ordinary and that's that's really what it's about it's okay. kind of celebrating 
the the ordinary life and the subversiveness of mm. that existence but also this idea you know the idea of the global city mm-hmm. right where we're all kind of in this together mm-hmm. and that these complex feelings that we think we have individually that no one else has is actually mm. something that we all kind of share and struggle with and go through and and by writing about it and by publishing it it makes us feel a little less alone. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So is that what you would say you're looking for in submissions? Yeah, so so the next issue is called, well, the theme is setting the record straight. Mm-hmm. And the idea is with the first piece as part of the relaunch, Legacies, that's kind of representative of the past. Legacies is, is somewhat representative of things that occurred in the past, but mm-hmm. still influencing the present. And this issue, setting the record straight, is really about this present moment, about truth telling, and what is truth and fake news and all that. And then the next issue, which will come out at the end of this year, is the theme is going to be, do we have a future? So these three pieces will be That's timely right now. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And and so and so we have kind of past, present, future mm-hmm. and that that's the that's the idea that we wanted to capture with these three. And then by the end of 2020 we bundle them together as well and have the three together as mm-hmm. a set. So they'll be they'll be oh. great. They can stand alone on their own, but also they they'll work together as a set too. So the next upcoming deadline is January 31st. Right. So open submissions now through January 31st. So please uh, submit email submissions at globalcitypress.com. And you can get more information about submission requirements on the website. Okay. What, yeah. What's the website? Uh, globalcitypress.com. Okay, yeah. great. So the press, so is your book the first in kind of the relaunch mine coming is, out? Mine is the first in the relaunch. Ooh, that's a lot of pressure. It is a lot of pressure, but I wanted to do, I, I wanted to get it out there. Yeah. Um, and when Lindsay approached me about helping to bring Global City back, mm-hmm. one of the, the things was publishing the book. Mm-hmm. And I had spent not a ton of time, but a good amount of time querying agents and reaching out and mm-hmm. trying. And you know, and I had some bites, but nothing really panned out. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I said, "All right, I could do this thing that sounds really, really interesting. Yeah. Or I could keep throwing this thing out into the dark and seeing if it'll yeah. land somewhere." And so I was, I was done with that whole thing with with the cold calling and mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it I, I just wanted to be done with that process but so I was really excited to, it is a yeah. soul-sucking process it is a soul-sucking and there's process. nothing artistic about it no, and it's yeah isn't. it's yeah. really yeah it's yeah. really really hard and I appreciate writers who you know I think people need to be more honest about their stories and how they got published and like the re- like how realistic the current publishing landscape is. Yeah. And we have said over and over again on this podcast that, you know, even self-publishing in its own way gets its gets a very bad rap because there are good self-published books out there. Some Absolutely. people just don't want to deal with the 
with what it takes to get it published at any press, um, which is understandable. Do you feel, because we've been asked this question about, you know, Brian's book was the first book published from our press. Do you feel that it's like self-publishing or not? That's a a great question. I I feel like it's this middle ground territory Mm -hmm. because it is, you know, we are a small press, Mm -hmm. but we are using the same means that other self-publishers use when you have when there is a lack of money mm-hmm. you you do what you have to do and the thing is these these are good quality books mm-hmm. ingram I, I guess this would be a plug for ingram here yeah, but I, know. They, I mean yeah, they, they publish both of our or they print both of our books so why not i i mean i was really impressed with the quality of the book i worked at harper collins for six years mm-hmm. and the quality is perhaps just as good if not better granted this was when I was working there, this was, you know, 10 years ago. So who does Harper Collins distribute with Ingram distributes for, for everybody, for everybody but now, they, yeah. but they use printers from all over the world. Mm. I mean, a lot because they have, they have the budget to do yeah. a big printing mm-hmm. when necessary. Though what I like about this too, is that, you know, we're printing in the United States. We're not printing in China, mm-hmm. which is what most Big publishers mm-hmm. do. They they have their books printed on the cheap in China. Yeah. Cheap labor. Um, here, you know, I think there, there's something to be said for keeping it somewhat local mm-hmm. and printing in the U.S. And I don't think it's something to be ashamed of. Yeah. I think it's, I think we're at a very interesting time in publishing. Mm-hmm. The last... 10, 15 years have been really interesting. And there are a lot of great writers who have gone from publishers to self-publishing. And there have been a lot of self-publishers who have been discovered as a result of that mm-hmm. and have then been picked up by by bigger presses. And you really just have to measure what is going to be best for you and your book and what yeah. you want to accomplish. But there, there are a lot of small presses all over the United States mm-hmm. that are doing really, really interesting things. And a lot of them are using this POD tech and making really high quality books. Yeah. I mean, if, if the writing is good and the editing is good, what, what's the difference? How do you feel about yeah. Amazon? Yeah. That's, that's something. How do you feel about Amazon? We we sell through Amazon. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, honestly, we felt that it was sort of literary suicide if we didn't right. use it. Because yeah. it's, I mean, just in terms of selling and, it, and for the marketing purposes, it's been really helpful to use Amazon. People, people trust it and people want to buy through it. And we've we feel looking at the numbers that selling through Amazon has been instrumental. Oh yeah, you can't not sell through Amazon. Yeah, they're, I, they're there are some small player. presses that resist it, and I admire them. Yeah, yeah, I. It's it's a tornado that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and you can't help but get sucked up by it. I don't know what the exact number is, but they dominate. Yeah, like 70% of book sales in the United States, something like that. Yeah. And so there are other things you can do to be a responsible publisher. If you reject that, then you're rejecting 70% of potential book sales. So 
it's something that you can't do. It's something you can't ignore. Yeah. It's just too big. Yeah. Well, what's uh, what's the next book coming out after yours? Do you guys have it yet? Well, we know what it's going to be. It's going to be a poetry collection. Oh, by, great. Uh, yeah, it's going to be Michelle Valadares's poetry collection, okay. her next poetry collection. And she is the MFA program director over at mm. City College. So she's next on the docket. And then after that... We'll see. Are you open for submissions for manuscripts? The open submission is really at this point just for the journal. Yeah. The books, because it's so, because we're so small, we're really just doing one a year Mm -hmm. at this point. So, you know, at some point that'll change. At some point we'll probably be open to to looking at, looking out for, for interesting works, but we're not there yet. How many people are on the team? So there are nine members of the collective. Great. And Lindsay has taken a little bit of a backseat. She's now calling herself consulting editor. But, you know, she's still she's still the the heart mm-hmm. of of the press. Mm-hmm. And everyone everyone else is great. Everyone's really interesting, all writers. I mean, and that's the best part about it. We're we're not business people. Yeah. We're we're writers who really appreciate and like good writing. Mm-hmm. And we've all appreciated Global City Press for what it was and what it has been and mm-hmm. hopefully what it will be. So what about the zine? What is yeah. Burley Bird? So I lived in Burlington, Vermont for a couple years. Mm-hmm. And I was doing quite a bit of writing. I had a, a residency at Vermont Studio Center. And I was really interested in publishing stuff that my friends were writing and publishing my own stuff. And I I knew a lot of interesting writers and a lot of interesting illustrators. And so I was just doing this, this kind of cheap zine and, and it ended up being kind of popular and kind of fun locally in Mm -hmm. Vermont. Um, It didn't get much more traction beyond that state, but it was still a fun project Mm -hmm. and it was printed really, really cheap on, on, crappy paper but that was kind of the appeal of it that's that's what zines are all about it's kind of underground publishing yeah um, i have and, a f- our yeah. friend kate smeisner who's been on the podcast before is is definitely a zine maker and yeah. she designed that one right oh, cool. there so I've, I've always wanted to make i always wanted to be like a teenager making my own zine but yeah you know, i mean i did like in my journals but right. nothing like that ever that I ever printed for anyone, right. anything like that. Yeah. yeah, I did too, and I never did it. But then in Vermont, I, I had this little hiatus, mm-hmm. and um, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to do this thing. And um, and I did it, Yeah, and it was fun while it lasted. And, yeah. and I met a lot of other people who did zines, and we collaborated on a lot of different projects. But it was just the right time in my life for it, because this was right after I left HarperCollins, and Charlotte, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we just traveled for about three months all over the country. I think I think we we hit forty three states, I think, and and just reading a lot mm-hmm. and talking a lot about writing, and that's kind of where it was born. It was on the road, but really, it was in Burlington when we you know then we landed in Burlington. That's where Charlotte went to grad school at UVM, and then. You know, then we we made it happen. Or I made it happen. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, you yeah. also teach, right? Yeah. So I teach at Yeshiva. 
Mm-hmm. And I've been teaching there for a little over a year now. And you teach creative writing? I teach writing. So I, I mostly first year writing. Okay. And some advanced writing classes as well. But the first year writing classes, that's my, my bread and butter. Okay. So it's called different things at different schools. Some Sometimes it's called first year writing. Sometimes they call it first year seminar. Sometimes freshman composition. At Yeshiva, they call it first year writing. And I taught first year writing at uh, St. John's okay. as well. Yeah. And you come directly from HarperCollins to teaching? No, I, I so I left HarperCollins in 2008. And then we traveled for a while. And then we went to Burlington. And then I got the writing grant. And I, mm-hmm. I, I wrote there and I bartended in Burlington. And uh, I did the zine. And then we came back to the city. Mm-hmm. And that's when I went for the MFA. And that's when I started teaching, and I, and I fell in love with it. What were you doing at HarperCollins? Will you, will you talk yeah. dirt about HarperCollins for <laughs> me right now? It was a great experience. Yeah, so right out of college, I wanted to be an editor. In between my, my junior and senior year, I had an internship at a very small press called Four Walls, Eight Windows. Which, I like that. Yeah. That's a cool name. It's a super cool name, and it was a, a very small room. It was run by this guy named John Oakes. And now he, yeah, so he, he founded Four Walls, Eight Windows, and then he started Or Books. And I worked with an editor there. Her name was Catherine Belden. Mm-hmm. Um, she's an incredible editor. And so that, it was just a fabulous experience. I got to dig through their gigantic slush pile as their little intern. And I, you know, I cut my teeth on it and couldn't get enough of it. So then I, you know, it's like, that's what I, that's what I want to be doing. I want to be editing. I want to be writing. Mm -hmm. just want to be involved in, in that creative process in any way I can. And then after I graduated, I, I, I applied for a number of editing jobs. And then I realized how hard those jobs are to come by and how competitive it is because anyone that wants to work in publishing wants to work as an editor. Yeah. And so I, I did NYU's Summer Publishing Institute. I don't know if you've heard of that. Mm-hmm. There, there are these different publishing institutes that most of them are, are a couple months long and they give you an overview of the publishing landscape. Mm-hmm. This was a long time ago and the publishing landscape was very different. This was 2003. So it was a very long time yeah, ago. Yeah, I wonder what those courses are like now. Right. Very different. In fact, my brother now teaches at NYU in their in their publishing institute. My brother works at The Times now doing video editing. So video was never part of it mm-hmm. back in 2003. But obviously they they got with The Times. They followed. Now everybody right. has a book tube. Now everybody has a book tube. And so so from there I met my future boss, Andrea Rosen, who hired me kind of on the spot. And she was the president of the special markets department at HarperCollins. So I did um, uh, special markets. So special markets was basically anywhere that a book is sold, Mm -hmm. that's not a bookstore. Um, that's, That's kind of a simple way of explaining it. So I learned a lot just from being on that side of it. And I did get to do some editing stuff because we did these custom prints of HarperCollins books mm-hmm. that we would customize for different customers, different clients. And so so I, I got involved in that and um, premium sales. 
And so it was a, it was a valuable experience. So yeah. had, did some yeah. of that special marketing help you with publicizing your own book? A little bit. I think I, I learned a lot about publishing. The problem is I left in 2008 mm-hmm. and it's been 12 years. In these 12 years, the publishing landscape has changed dramatically. What would you say the biggest difference is between now and 2008? There's been a lot more conglomeration. And so before I think there, there were a number of presses that were thriving and now they've, they've, mm. they've conjoined. RIP Tin House. That's right. That's right. And so, and also, of course, Amazon is a big reason why things have changed so much. Yeah. And, you know, we thought ebooks was going to be a major game changer, but, but it hasn't been yeah. as big of a game changer as we thought it was going to be. But, Which I'm not yeah. sad about. <laughs> yeah, neither am I. Yeah. But what I am excited about, which is something I, I've always loved audiobooks. Yeah. And podcasts now. Well, I, you know, podcasts is I, it's a relatively new thing, but I always loved listening to books on tape, mm-hmm. um, hearing the author read his or her own work. And I love how this part of publishing um, audiobooks and podcasts it does seem is just to be booming, exploding. Mm-hmm. It's exploding. And I think that might be one of the biggest changes, honestly. Yeah, we really love podcasting, and we're hoping to have the audiobook done this summer to release at the one-year mark of Brian's book. So, because we don't have a hardback, so okay. rather than like you know the paperback release, we're going to do the audiobook release. That's but fabulous. Is is Brian going to read? He is it? going to read. Yeah, We've great. been already practicing that. It's, That's great. It's a fun new experience for That's him because it's totally different than hosting the podcast. Hosting right. the podcast, we can sound however we want. We even tried to record in here where we're recording the podcast right now. Yeah. But while we can like, you know, be lenient with certain sirens going on in the background, we could not do it with the audiobook. We're like, it needs to be clean. So we've actually are working on rigging a studio out of our bathroom rather than having to go rent studio space and schedule time because, you know, we live here. It's easier if we can just like do it, record when we can. So we're trying to, Right now, future authors, we won't make come sit in our bathroom and read their book. I don't know. That sounds pretty good. I, I mean, hey, a studio is a studio. Yeah. It's a studio. Yeah. As long as it's quiet, no one's going to know. Well, hopefully difference. for future authors, we have money for professional space. But yeah, but yeah. yeah that's the audio book. really exciting. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I, I think more and more people, I think partly as a, as a result of the success of podcasts, I think audiobooks have, have gotten a lot mm-hmm. more popular as well. Are you recording your book for an audiobook? Not yet. Um, hopefully. It's, yeah, hopefully. I'd like to do it. I don't know if I want to read it or if I want someone else to read it. Yeah. That's still TBD at this point. We've had a couple offers from people who've said they they want to read their books we've uh, like uh, my feeling is is if the author wants to record their own book and as long as they're not just like totally monotone you know they have some personality in their voice then they're then they can read their book right yeah which brian is funny yeah he and he probably better than anyone can read his incredibly intense vocabulary so yeah there there is something special about Mm -hmm. hearing the author read his or her own stuff when it's when it's this voice actor there's something lost there yeah there there's definitely something lost though i guess it does depend i mean some people yeah some people just don't have the voice no. right no some people don't have a, a 
in any kind of performance and right. then which is fine you get somebody else to read but yeah right. yeah right. well oh go ahead yeah no i was just gonna say i would love i would love to do it at some point and hopefully we'll be able to well, can we record a sneak peek of that audiobook right yeah, now and have you read? Let's do it. <laughs> so I can read from the first chapter and we tell us a little bit about the escapist. Sure. Yeah, show so it's called The Escapist. It's about a young man. His name is Billy Shoot. He's in his early twenties and he's always been an escapist. He had a really difficult childhood. His mother died when he was a baby, so he never knew his mother. And he had a very abusive father. Mm. And his father and his brother and his grandfather were all military men, Mm -hmm. are all military men. And this takes place in the 2000s during the Iraq War. So his, um, his father is in Iraq and his brother is in Iraq, but he does not enlist. Mm-hmm. And that that was a decision that he came to partly as a result of him being this escapist. Part of part of the way he escapes and that how he learned to escape was through drug use. And so he had been using a number of different types of drugs since he was young. He was prescribed Adderall and Ritalin and Dexedrin from a really young age. And, and his father would kind of hand feed him meds of his own late at night when his stepmother wasn't around. And so, so anyway, so fast forward, he is, he's in his early twenties. His father has returned from war and he finds out that his own father has escaped Mm -hmm. and his, he left the house the house that Billy grew up in in the middle of the night and disappeared. Okay. And so he decides to find dad. And those are the first two words of the book. Okay. Find dad. Oh, yeah. all right. All right. So this is chapter one. Find dad. Finally confront him about it. Confront him about everything. Use force if necessary. Find out how he got that eye gouged out. All those scars on his head. Was it from face-to-face combat? From shrapnel flying through the air from a roadside IED? From a bullet grazing his face? Make him reveal what he feels when he looks in the mirror. How unbearable it is to look. How unbearable it is that he's still here and so many of them are gone. That you're still here and that you still remember. That you'll never forget. Is that what made him run off? Did the volcanic pressure from all that buried shame finally cause this beast to erupt? You'll find him, and you'll hit him with the hard stuff. You won't wimp out this time. You'll go in deep. You'll go in for the kill. This time will be different. You had the chance the last time you saw him. You were sitting there with him at the table in Dundalk. It was silent. It was right there for you. But what did you do? You talked about badminton. Of course you did how you had started playing again. You're still playing that stupid fucking game, shrimp? That's how he said it, fast and matter-of-factly. It's not stupid, it's fun. It's fun hitting people with the shuttlecock. I spiked it right into this lanky kid's face and he stumbled and fell to the floor. Dad's face didn't change. He didn't even acknowledge your response. 
But then his blank face changed. You remember what made it change. It wasn't you. He would never change his face for you unless he was doing naughty. His face changed when he glanced out the living room window and saw one of the neighborhood kids on the front lawn holding a leash around a small dog's neck. The dog was dropping a large deuce right there on the lawn. Dad watched, shaking his head. The dog finished her business, and then the kid started walking away. What the fucking piss, Dad said. <laughs> then he jumped out of his chair, ran to the front door, and then outside. He yelled something at the kid, something like, Hey, clean this shit off my yard. This is private property, you prick. The kid chose to ignore him. The kid just continued walking away with his head down, speaking softly to his pup. Dad kept yelling at the kid. Stop now, you will clean this shit off my property. Still no response from the kid. Then, Dad bent down and picked up the piece of shit, picked it up with his bare hand, and chucked it at him. And it hit him on the back of the head, bullseye. The kid reached back, then looked at his fingers, realized what had just happened. What the fuck is your problem? The kid yelled as he turned back around. He took a few steps toward Dad, but when the kid saw his face, saw that Dad was this one-eyed miscreant, he froze in place, bewitched by his presence. Dad did that to people, and Dad was staring at him, his eye locked on his target. My problem? My problem is little disrespectful fobbits like you leaving dog shit in my yard. He held it with his back arched straight, his arms stiffly at his sides, his head bobbing forcefully forward. This little bluehead's out of formation, he said as he approached the kid. This little bluehead needs to learn some respect. He'd fallen back into it. What the fuck are you talking about, mister? Then dad grabbed him by his shirt. You shit in my yard? You shit in my yard? The pup picked up on his owner's fear and yapped and howled and danced around dad's legs. The pup tried gnawing on dad's pant leg like a mosquito sucking the blood of an elephant. A nuisance, but not enough to sidetrack the beast from finishing his mission. I'm calling the police, the kid said in a cracked voice. I am the police, motherfucker. He always said shit like that when he was back in it. The war. You came down the steps, ran over, and grabbed Dad by the shoulders. Dad jabbed back with his elbow and struck you square on the nose. You fell to the ground, 20 years old, crying there on the sidewalk like a baby. God, you are a fucking pussy. Can we please just go inside, you pleaded, your pants a little piss-stained. Dad turned his attention from the kid to you and helped you up. He brought you back into the house, sat you down on the couch, filled a bag with ice, and rested it on your nose. The stench of dog shit permeated your breathing for hours. Billy Shute put down the journal, amazed. He had intended to leave it blank, yet he had begun writing. He was on the side of the highway, somewhere in western New York. Where? He couldn't see any signs. But this was his life again, sitting in a car in the breakdown lane on the side of the highway. It's what Billy did best, escape. Felix's farm, where he had been working for the past couple of weeks, had become a wasteland for him. Again, like all of America, was pure desert. Billy had pulled his car over and written, as Felix had requested of him. Keeping a journal, writing it all down, opening the pathways. It was Felix's last-ditch bid the morning Billy fled the farm to help this troubled boy he knew was maybe past saving. 
He saw something in Billy just as his daughter had, for it was Nicole that got him the job at the farm. It would have surprised Felix to know that Billy listened, took his advice to heart, that the words had just poured out of Billy into this journal which Felix had slid into his hands earlier that morning as he was fleeing. And the anecdote about his father was Billy's beginning. Game over, he finally said aloud, shaking himself out of a trance. He couldn't just park forever on the side of the highway. Go to Grandma. Start there. And while you're at it, go see Uncle George. Uncle George will let you stay the night. And Peter, go see Peter. That fucker. And Cynthia. No, no, not Cynthia. The thought of seeing his stepmother suddenly made him want to shrivel up. She won't be able to help you. She can never help you. She couldn't even help herself. He turned on the ignition, then opened up the cooler on the floor of the passenger seat. It contained several pill bottles, nondescript bags partially concealed by plastic bottles of water and Gatorade and a towel. He removed the towel to wipe the sweat off his face, took out one of the water bottles and a pill bottle, removed two yellowish capsules, washed them down, and was on the move again. Billy drove south through rural New York, through Pennsylvania, into Maryland, chain-smoking, and switching radio stations between heavy metal, pure hits of the 80s, 90s, and today, and droll British public broadcasting voices. He got off the highway at the edge of Baltimore County and drove along the eastern banks of the Chesapeake Bay. When he got to Merritt Boulevard, to his old neighborhood in Dundalk, he saw the same buildings boarded up, the same fast food joints and gas stations exactly as they had always been, like the place was frozen in time. He slowed his car down as he passed the two-family duplex where he had grown up. It had been almost a year since he had been back. The lawn was overgrown, and the tree in front was still rotting from the inside out, its limbs and branches sparser. The sidewalk was still uneven cement. A horn sounded behind him. From the car, he couldn't see Cynthia through the window, couldn't tell if she was inside, but with her bad back and lack of mobility, and most likely an even more bitter depression, it would have been rare for his stepmother to be elsewhere. She did have a job, but it was at night. He might have pulled his car over, parked, gotten out, and even gone inside to see her, to confront her, too. But there was a driver behind him, a driver with a loud horn, and that horn was a bolt to his consciousness, a shock to his system, a sign to keep driving. He continued west through downtown Baltimore. Billy drove up to his Uncle George's house in Towson, a quaint house on a quaint street in a quaint suburb of the city, parked the car, sat, and stared into the windows of the house a while. He got out, stretched his legs and his back, and then rested against the hood. A car eventually pulled into the driveway. Aunt Tracy. Billy, what are you doing here? Hey, Aunt Tracy. She walked over to him and gave him a hug. Then she pulled back to inspect him. I haven't seen you in so long. God, look at you. You're all grown up. You look more like your father every time I see you. Can I stay the night with you guys? Billy asked. I came to visit Grandma. After pausing for a moment, for he had caught her pretty off guard, she said that she thought it would be okay. You're going to just stay the night, huh? Yeah, just for the night. I hope I'm not intruding. No, not intruding at all. Not at all. Come on inside, Billy boy. At the stairs of the house, Aunt Tracy looked back at him while fumbling for her keys. Greg will be home. He's back from college. He loves college. 
He's studying marketing, you know. He'll be so happy to see you. Marketing, cool. They walked in and Billy took a seat on the couch. Aunt Tracy went upstairs to put her stuff down. Billy could hear her talking in a low voice but couldn't make out the words. She eventually came down with Greg following behind her. Greg, look who it is, Cousin Billy! Hi, Greg. Hi, Billy. Where's Uncle George? I just spoke to him on the phone. He's still at work, but I told him you're here. I told him you're staying the night. And he suggested we all go out for dinner. A real nice dinner. How does that sound, Billy boy? Uncle George had found God later in life. He thanked God before each meal. Aunt Tracy closed her eyes alongside her husband and appeared to be in some kind of reverie, hanging off of each word of his prayer. It struck Billy how different things would have been if his dad had also found God. Then he wondered how one goes about finding God in the first place, where to look. Do you find God, or does God find you? Or do you just bump into each other somewhere on the side of the road and strike up a conversation, <laughs> become friends, fall in love? Billy stared forward at Greg, who was staring at the wall. Neither of them blinked. Greg said, Amen, along with his parents. As they ate, Billy followed along. There were many moments of silence, interrupted by humdrum conversation. Uncle George and Aunt Tracy talked about work. Greg sat quietly, playing with his food, and made intermittent bites. Billy also did a form of food playing, yet his was more like food arranging, separating each food item into its own neat pile on the plate without letting any of the piles touch. Billy talked about his job at Copen Haskett in New York City and didn't mention that he had quit almost a month ago. Of course, they were scared to talk to him about anything real, especially about his dad. They didn't want to talk about Cynthia either. No uncomfortable conversation. It was Uncle George's way. Just get the meal over with. Eat your food. Go home. Maybe put on a movie. Go to sleep. Send the boy on his way. Uncle George picked up the tab for dinner. In fact, Billy was counting on it. Getting a good free meal was worth the uncomfortable silences with family members who were more or less strangers with recognizable faces ascribed to a few old memories. The next morning, Friday, Billy awoke and sat up in bed. He heard movement downstairs, feet shuffling on floorboards, hushed voices, doors opening and closing. Uncle George called his name from downstairs. Billy opened the bedroom door and peeked out his head. Good morning. How did you sleep? Fine. Good. Hey, listen, Aunt Tracy and I are off to work. Greg's still here, and we wrote out directions to the Frederick Nursing Home in case you need them. Have fun with Grandma. Thanks, Uncle George. The front door shut loudly. Billy closed the bedroom door and got back into bed. He pulled the sheet over his body, up to his chin, and stared at the ceiling. Then he heard the downstairs door open again, heard the creaking of the stairs, and then a knock on the bedroom door. Come in. The door propped open a few inches, and Uncle George stuck his head through the crack of it. Listen, Uncle George paused. I just want to tell you. I want to tell you that I'm sorry about everything that happened with your dad. George pushed the door open and slowly entered the room with his head down. He must have gone through hell out there. I can't imagine what he had to have seen, what he had to have gone through. He sat down at the edge of the bed by Billy's feet. You know, he and I, well, we've always had our differences. Your dad and I haven't talked in a long time, as you know. It's been, gosh, eight or nine years now. 
We've said some pretty nasty things to each other, done some pretty nasty things to each other. Growing up, things were tough for us, being a kid in Dundalk with our dad, your grandfather. I sometimes forget how hard things were, not just for me, but for your dad too, especially for your dad. Alan hated your grandfather, and your grandfather hated him too, hated both of us. Probably because when he looked at us, he was seeing himself, was seeing something about himself. And only hate would make a man do the kinds of things he did to us. Billy was all too familiar with the sentiments. I don't know how much Alan has talked about this. Is he, if he's ever talked about it, how much you know. Maybe you know none of it, but he took it out on us. Alan got the worst of it. Billy wondered how much Uncle George knew of his own experience with his father. Maybe Uncle George had only assumed. It's funny, Uncle George said. Alan still followed in your grandfather's footsteps. He also joined the army. Just as much as Alan needed to get away from him in some weird way, I think he enlisted for him to get closer to him, to understand. I ran away from the fire. Your dad ran right into it, head first. That's just the kind of man he is, just like your grandfather. And your grandfather, he really had it tough after the war, too. He was also injured, badly, and he was never the same. The war maimed him. He didn't die out there, but that's what did him in. We didn't understand that as kids, and it's still hard, but it's God's will. Billy was still staring straight up at the ceiling. I just want you to know, Uncle George said. I want your dad to know that I hope he can get through. Then in a low voice, Uncle George continued. I wanted to call him. I really did. I just I never could do it. And now he's off. God knows where. I'm going to find him, Billy said. He had written down the same sentiment just a day ago in the journal Felix had given him, but it startled him to say it. The words were a surprise, just as much to him as they were to Uncle George. I can stop there. Oof. What happens next? Well, so then Uncle George eventually leaves the bedroom and Billy takes out the journal again and does a second entry. And then he goes off to the nursing home to see his grandmother, who he hasn't seen in a while, Mm -hmm. kind of interrogate her to some degree. But that proves futile because she has Alzheimer's. So it's, it's... it, it it doesn't get him very far. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And from there, he, he just keeps traveling, keeps trying to track down some leads to find his dad and still kind of battling his own demons and thinking back to, to the trauma that, that he had with his father while he was growing up. And just being able to write about it was, was, was really what, what, what became important yeah. in his journey. It's not about finding his dad. It was about, well, it wasn't about actually finding him. It was about going on this journey mm-hmm. to find him. You yeah. said you've been working on this more or less for ten years. What, what inspired? What what hooked you to this story in the first place? Yeah, this story has taken so many different twists and turns, and it was so many different things. So, originally, you know, in my early twenties, I was really into frame narratives mm-hmm. and metafiction and meta narratives and stories within stories and t- stories about writers. Mm-hmm. I, I just loved these stories about writers who were also writing. Paul Auster was a big inspiration for me. Who, Would you say it's like post, like 
uh, postmodern in a way? Yeah, I guess. But I think writers have been doing this long before mm-hmm. the postmodern era. You know, frame narratives go back forever. I didn't know if it has some element of like zooming out and kind of pulling down that fourth wall at all. Yeah. 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 Well, so I was really interested in that originally. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to write a story about a writer. And I tried it and I got somewhere and it just wasn't working. Yeah. Because I was originally writing about a fiction writer who was writing his own fiction. Mm -hmm. And so the book was his fiction and the story of him writing the fiction and the things that he experienced that inspired his fiction. Yeah. But eventually, you know, and I discovered this late, what what really worked was when Billy was writing about his real life experiences, not writing fiction. Mm-hmm. So the the element of him writing fiction was completely removed from the book. And so he, you know, it, originally I had him kind of turning into a fiction writer and showing where that inspiration came from. But it just, it didn't work. And so my editor, um, we we ended up cutting about I don't know, 60, 80 pages from the book mm, of, just wow. his, of his fiction. <laughs> was and, that gutting? Oh, it was incredibly <laughs> gutting because that's that's how the whole thing started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it all started from that. But that's, that's the way these things work. Yeah. And it, it was really hard, but she was right. Yeah. It, it, it's much better without it just it's when he's writing about his his past and his real life experiences it's just a, it's much more engaging and when he's writing about fiction his fiction stories that i i wanted to to show how they they were inspired by what he was experiencing it became this alternate story so so i think readers had just too hard of a time mm-hmm. connecting those dots mm-hmm. but that's that's what i was interested in i was interested in sending the reader down this rabbit hole. Yeah. But eventually I realized that it was too much of a rabbit hole. Yeah. And so, so I needed to, to back it up a okay. little bit. Yeah. All right. Um, well, so it'll be out January 28th. Yeah. You having a big launch party? Yeah. We're having a party at pianos. Oh, yeah. Love that bar. At, at the, yeah. We're, we're doing it at the upstairs lounge and it should be a lot of fun. So if you're in your, is it open? Like if you're in New open. York? Yeah, if you're in New York, by? come on by. Pianos, okay. Upstairs Lounge. I'm going to be in conversation with uh, Lindsay Abrams. And um, Lindsay, I should mention, I should I should throw a plug out there for her. She has written three books um, and she wrote a piece called Our History in New York, something called Double Vision and Charting by the Stars and has a, a new collection of short stories coming out. So we're going to be in conversation with each other and it'll be a fun party. Awesome. And then you can catch David reading the New York on February 9th at 8 p.m. It'll be a lot of fun. At DTUT. So come come out and you'll have books for sale, I'm sure, at that one. Oh, great. Oh, and by the way, I live very close to DTUT. Awesome. Perfect. So it's like a 10 minute walk. Oh, great. You can just walk over. Yeah. So come, come out either one of those nights and get his book, The Escapist out January 28th. David, thank you so much for being on and sharing part of your book with us. I think you have a lovely audiobook voice. Oh, thank you. You could read it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. It was a lot of fun talking And for with telling you. us all about Global City and everything too. So people, you writers who are listening should submit, right? Yes, please do. Till January 31st, submissions at globalcitypress.com. 
Awesome. Thanks again, David. Thank you, Katie. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 46th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with me, your host, Katie Rainey, and featuring David Peretz. Our transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. This podcast was edited by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. It's the burn, bombing on y'all and getting gully as the fern. 